you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Shortly after the signing of the Treaty of Schoenbrunn in October of 1809, bringing an end to the War of the Fifth Coalition, a British official on a mission to the Austrian court vanished without a trace. He was in Germany on his way back to British territories, and while examining his horses at an inn near Berlin, he walked around to the other side of his horses and disappeared, never to be seen again. Or, that's the way it's usually told. I'm Andrew Gable, and this is episode 66, The Disappearance of Benjamin Bathurst. Arthur Matchen once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. chaotic and bloody years immediately following the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror, the newly minute Republic launched a series of military offensives beginning in 1794. First to be invaded was Belgium, followed by the Netherlands, and later part of Germany. By December 2nd, 1804, the primary player in these military campaigns, Napoleon Bonaparte, had been proclaimed Emperor of France. In the next several years, a series of coalitions of nations, often led by Britain, against whom Napoleon had led an abortive invasion seven years before, and the Austrian Empire, whom Napoleon had alienated when he compelled them to surrender the southern Netherlands. By 1809, the Napoleonic Empire had expanded considerably to include Spain, Italy, and most of Germany, and client states in the Duchy of Warsaw, comprised of the majority of Poland, and Denmark and Norway, a single country at the time. The Holy Roman Empire was dissolved on December 27, 1805, when the Peace of Pressburg was signed, and most of the territories of the empire were ceded to Napoleon. This treaty put an end to the hostilities between the French and the Habsburgs that had flared up into open conflict several times that year. As a result, Franz II of the Holy Roman Empire was was compelled to forfeit that title, becoming thereafter known as Franz I of the Austrian Empire. In 1809, while the British were fighting Napoleon in the Peninsular War in Spain, Austria once again launched offensive against the occupying French, while several other nations waged war against the French on other fronts. This was the War of the Fifth Coalition. On October 14, 1809, the Treaty of Schönbrunn was signed in Vienna, putting an end to the war. As a result of this, Franz I was forced to secede to Napoleon even more territory, including most of Croatia. 
Benjamin Bathurst was born in 1784 to Henry Bathurst, Bishop of Norwich, and his wife Grace. He had two older brothers, Henry and James, the latter of whom was serving as an aide-de-camp to Lord Wellington in Spain in 1809. Benjamin was married to Phyllida Call, daughter of a wealthy Cornish family, and he had three children, only one of whom survived after 1809. In that year, Bathurst, who was by now employed as a diplomat by the British government, was sent to the court of Franz I in Austria. He was thus integral to bringing Austria into the War of the Fifth Coalition. After the defeat at the Battle of Wagram in July, and the signing of the Treaty of Schönbrunn a few months later, Bathurst was recalled to Britain by his superiors. At first, he was considering going south, through French territory, to Trieste, and thus to the Adriatic Sea. But he saw this route as too risky. It had been noted that by this time he was quite paranoid concerning the notion it has been noted that by this time he was quite paranoid concerning the notion that the French were actively seeking his death. To what extent they actually were is debatable. He decided it would be better to travel northward along the Oder River and into Prussia, and thence northwest along the Elbe. In the company of his secretary at the court of the emperor, Nicolaus Krause, and an unnamed valet, Bathurst set out on his journey, assuming the role of a merchant named Koch, and his secretary assuming the name of Fisher. On November 25th, then, at about midday, he arrived at the town of Perleberg, about 75 miles northwest of Berlin. The retinue tied up their horses at the post house, and then stopped at a neighboring inn called the White Swan. Although, of course, being German, I'm certain it didn't actually have an English name. Near that town's Parkamer Gate. Through this gate proceeded the road northwest toward Hamburg, where he was to board a ship bound for England. Bathurst then proceeded to the home of a military man named Captain Klitzing, commander of a regiment of the Brandenburg Cuirassiers stationed in Perleberg, to announce himself as a traveler bound for Hamburg. He said he had suspicions that his life was in danger, and requested that some soldiers be assigned to him as guards. An account of the disappearance penned by Arthur Mackin says that Bathurst had seen something at the White Swan, which spurred his suspicions. What might this have been? Certainly his fears were real. As recorded by Sabine Baringold, quote, A lady who was present noticed that he seemed profoundly agitated, that he trembled as though egg-stricken, and was unable to raise a cup of tea that was offered to him to his lips without spilling it. Also, when leaving Captain Klitzing's, it was said that Bathurst was so nervous he could scarcely put on his coat. Clearly, something had unnerved him greatly. It's likewise unclear what name he had given to Klitzing. While in a part of Prussia that was at least nominally allied with the British, it's likely, in my mind, that the noticeably paranoid Bathurst wouldn't necessarily have told the guard captain who he actually was. In a subsequent passage to the one already quoted, Baringold describes what is, in years since, to be the most common version of the story. On Mr. Bathurst's return to the inn, he countermanded the horses. He said he would not start till night. He considered that it would be safer for him to spin along the dangerous portion of the route by night when Napoleon's spies would be less likely to be on the alert. He remained in the inn, writing and burning papers. At seven o'clock, he dismissed the soldiers on guard and ordered the horses to be ready by nine. He stood outside the inn watching his portmanteau, which had been taken within, being replaced on the carriage, 
stepped round to the heads of the horses, and was never seen again. To be fair, he goes on to clarify the circumstances as follows. It must be remembered that this was at the end of November. Darkness had closed in before 5 p.m., as the sun had set at 4. An oil lantern hung across the street, emitting a feeble light. The ostler had a horn lantern, wherewith he and the postillion adjusted the harness of the horses. The landlord was in the doorway talking to the secretary, who, as courier, was paying the account. No one particularly observed the movements of Mr. Bathurst at the moment. He had gone to the horse's heads, where the ostler's lantern had, follow, had fallen on him. The horses were in, the postillion ready, the valet stood by the carriage door, the landlord had his cap in his hand ready to wish the gentleman a lucky journey. The secretary was impatient as the wind was cold. They waited. They sent up to the room which Mr. Bathurst had engaged. They called, all in vain. Suddenly, inexplicably, without a word, a cry, an alarm of any sort, he was gone, spirited away, and what really became of him will never be known with certainty. But the first excerpt is the one which is remembered, and has formed almost all accounts of the disappearance of Bathurst in years since. In fact, most stop there, making the disappearance a truly inexplicable one. But as the second quote shows, by the heads of the horses is simply where he was last seen, he wasn't noticed to be missing for a few moments, at least, and in fact Trefina Thistlethwaite, the sister of Benjamin Bathurst, says it was nearly an hour before any searches were made for him. Another account states that, quote, The general supposition was that he absented himself from the carriage for some purpose or other. Where he went, nobody knows. Whether he had already been sitting in the carriage and got out again, we cannot ascertain. Krause thought it might be possible that Bathurst had gone back to see Captain Klitzing and gotten a cadre of guards assigned to the carriage. But when he arrived, he found that, unsurprisingly, Bathurst was not there. Klitzing, however, thought it was alarming that the traveler who feared for his life should, in actuality, go missing, and so he arranged for Krause and the valet to be sent to another inn, the Golden Crown, and assigned guards to their rooms. The next morning, the town was searched thoroughly for the man. The Stepnitz River was dredged, and all buildings in the vicinity were searched. Patrols made their way through the woods of the region, to no avail. Around noontime, Klitzing went to Kyritz to notify a superior officer. From there, he went to Berlin, and then came back to Perleberg to launch a full investigation. Only two days after the disappearance, on November 27th, a fur coat, which Klitzing identified as the one worn by Coke slash Bathurst at their meeting, was found in a cellar belonging to the family of the postmaster of Perleburg, a man named Schmidt. It was concealed behind a pile of firewood. Other accounts, however, state that it was found in an outhouse. Anyway, Frau Schmidt said that she had found the fur coat abandoned in the post house and had taken it home and given it to her son Augustus. At least one witness claimed to have seen the missing man walking out of the square and down the narrow street which led to the Schmidt's house. When questioned about this, Augustus Schmitz didn't necessarily deny it. Instead, he claimed that according to his mother, the man had sent her to buy some gunpowder for him. He said he therefore assumed that the man had shot himself. Captain Klitzing initially thought that in actuality, Augustus Schmidt had stolen the coat from Bathurst. But his investigation had determined, however, 
that Augustus hadn't even been home at the time of the disappearance. On December 16th, three weeks after Bathurst's disappearance, two women were in a forest near the town of Quitzow when they found a, pa a pair of pants turned inside out, lying just off the path. When examined, the pants were discovered to have large mud stains on them, quote, as if the man who had worn them had lain on the earth. There were what seemed to be two bullet holes in the pants, but oddly, there was no blood accompanying these. Taking them to the burgomaster back in Perleburg, it was discovered that the pants did, indeed, belong to Benjamin Bathurst, as there was a hurriedly scrawled letter to his wife in, his po in the pocket. The letter said that he was afraid he would never reach England, and that if he did not, it was the fault of the Count Dontregs, and he requested her not remarry if he should meet with foul play. Louis Alexander Delaunay, the Comte d'Entregues, was a French revolutionary who later abandoned his ideals after the storming of Versailles. He became a defender of the monarchy and involved himself in a plot to help the royal family escape France, but fled the country after his co-conspirator was arrested. In 1797, he was arrested in Trieste, but was freed, eventually making his way to Austria and then finally to England where he ingratiated himself with the British government, most notably with George Canning, the foreign secretary. Both Don Traggs and his wife were murdered in 1812 at their home at 27 The Terrace in the London suburb of Barnes. It is perhaps notable that it's rumored that he was assassinated by Napoleon, for reasons that will become clear in a bit. It was around this time that Lord Wellesley, who had replaced Canning as foreign secretary upon his resignation, following an ill-conceived duel with Lord Castlereagh, informed the Bathurst family of the disappearance. A reward totaling £2,000 was offered, 1000 from the British government and 1000 from Bathurst's family. As well, there was also a reward of 100 Friedrichs Dior offered by the Prince of Prussia. Flitta Bathurst then went to the continent to begin a search for her husband. During the search, she actually was admitted to see Napoleon himself, who told her in no uncertain terms that he had had nothing to do with her husband's disappearance. This must have been sometime after January 20th, 1810, because it was on that date that an article in the London Times accused Napoleon of involvement. There is too much reason to fear that the account of the death of Mr. Bathurst, late envoy to the Emperor of Austria, inserted in the Paris Journal, is correct as to the principal fact. It was stated, as an article of Berlin News, of the date of December 10th, that Mr. Bathurst had evinced symptoms of insanity on his journey through the city, and that he had subsequently fallen by his own hand in the vicinity of Perleburg. Information, however, has been received within these few days, which forcibly tends to fix the guilt of Mr. Bathurst's death, or disappearance, on the French government. It appears that Mr. Bathurst left Berlin with passports from the Prussian government, and in excellent health, both of mind and body, he was to proceed to Hamburg, but Hamburger he never reached. At some town near the French territories, he was seized, as is supposed, by a party of French soldiers. What happened afterwards is not accurately known. His pantaloons have been found near the town where he was seized, and a letter in them to his wife, but nothing else. The Prussian government, upon receiving the intelligence, evinced the deepest regret and offered a large reward for the discovery of the body. No success, however, has attended the offer. While in Paris, she received word from Magdeburg, 
where an unnamed German noblewoman had been dancing with the governor of the city at a ball, when he said he had the missing man in his custody. So off to Magdeburg she went. But when confronted, the governor told her that the British spy in his custody turned out to be not her husband, but another named Louis Fritz. However, when she wrote to the British government, they had no knowledge of anyone named Fritz, begging the question of who exactly the governor of Magdeburg had in his custody. Mrs. Thistlethwaite, who as I said was Benjamin Bathurst's sister, was also told by the earlier mentioned Comte Dantregs that her brother had been arrested by mounted troops and carried off to Magdeburg, and there murdered, and the artist Thomas Richard Underwood, a prisoner of war in Paris in 1809, said several years later that he had heard the, th the theory from many British and French alike around the time. He also is said to have told her that her brother's assassination was ordered not by Napoleon, but instead by the chief of police in Paris, Joseph Fouché. A revolutionary diehard, Fouché had been an associate of the notorious Maximilien Robespierre. Tensions between Napoleon and his chief of police were high. Napoleon constantly questioned whether he could trust Fouché, and in late 1809, shortly before Bathurst's disappearance, the police chief began peace talks with Britain of his own volition. This infuriated Napoleon when he started his own negotiations a few months later. In 1862, the theory that Bathurst had been assassinated was lent credence by a discovery made and described in the British press. It having become necessary to execute some repairs in the citadel of Magdeburg, a wall was pulled down, and behind it, in a small recess, was found the skeleton of a man in upright posture, the hands fastened to the back. However, the discovery itself was denied in Magdeburg as originating with a sensationalist newspaper in that city. And before you say, well, of course they deny that because that was, you know, Napoleonic territory, remember that not only was the Napoleonic Empire a distant memory by this point, Napoleon himself was as well, having died 30 years before. So... There was no reason for the press of Magdeburg to deny the story. So, Sir Bathurst, ambassador extraordinary of England to the court of Austria, concerning whom a German newspaper, under date of December 10th, stated that he had committed suicide in a fit of insanity, is well in mind and body. His friends have received a letter from him dated December 13th, which, therefore, must have been written after the date of his supposed death. This article which appeared in a Hamburg newspaper for January 23, 1810, addresses another theory as to Bathurst's fate, suicide. It does appear that some of his behavior in the days leading up to his disappearance was suspect at best. Mike Dash mentions in a 14 Times article about the incident that though he conducted quite a bit of business while in Berlin, he neglected to make con contact with the British consul there, Galway Mills, something you would think would be a priority for an intelligence officer passing through a city, even one traveling incognito. On December 12, 1809, a correspondent for the French publication Moniteur says that Sir Bathurst, on his way from Berlin, showed signs of insanity and destroyed himself in the vicinity of Perleberg. This is the article referred to in that earlier quoted Times article. On January 29, 1810, the same publication again mentioned that he appeared deranged. Then there is the matter of his behavior in Perleberg while speaking to Captain Klitzing, which also was very odd. 
The French allegations of suicide are in a way, if not corroborated, at least given a bit more weight by a statement made by Galway Mills. He wrote that, quote, Mr. B had been for some time previous to his reaching P, meaning, of course, Perleberg, in a very alarming state. This statement, depending on how you interpret it, could refer to Bathurst having been somewhat mentally unbalanced even before the trip to Austria. Even Bathurst's wife said she, quote, does not deny he was in a state of excitement. Anyway, in April of 1810, Bathurst's wife Phyllida made her way to Perleberg to investigate the whereabouts of her husband. It was at this time that a statement was made by a woman named Hacker, who was at that time in prison for fraud, alleging that, A few weeks before Christmas, I was on my way to Perleberg from a place in Holstein, where my husband had found work. In the little town of Seaberg, 12 miles from Hamburg, I met the shoemaker's assistant Goldberger, a Perleberg, whom I knew from having danced with him. He was well-dressed and had from his fob hanging a hair chain with gold seals. His knitted silk purse was stuffed with Louis Dior's. When I asked him how he came by so much money, he said, Oh, I got $500 in the watch as hush money when the Englishman was murdered. He told me he had no more particulars except that one of the seals was engraved with a name, and he had had that altered in Hamburg. Little weight was placed on Hacker's statement, however, with it being noted she had been in prison for some time, but hadn't made the statement until the missing man's wife showed up in town. This suggested that she had made the confession to try to get Phyllida Bathurst to intervene on her behalf. As a result, her statement was not really investigated. It was true, however, that Hacker's husband operated a shoemaking shop in the vicinity of the White Swan. Not long after this statement was made, he left Perleberg for Altona, and when arriving there, it was rumored that he possessed quite a lot of money for a shoemaker. On April 15, 1852, an old cottage along the road just north of the White Swan, which belonged at that time to a man named Kiesewetter, was torn down, and a skeleton found buried beneath the stable. The skeleton was of a man, with a large wound on the back of the skull, suggesting that he had been clubbed with some sort of bludgeon. Investigation revealed that Kiesewetter had bought the house from a man named Christian Mertens, and that he, in turn, had inherited the house from his father. Mertens' father, interestingly, had been employed at the White Swan at the time that Bathurst had disappeared. Furthermore, it appears that due to his job, he may very well have been part of the preparations for Bathurst's journey. On August 23rd, the skull was shown to Mrs. Thistlethwaite, and she was questioned as to whether it was, his br it was her brother's. She was able to say quite positively that they were not. This she did by the teeth and the shape of the skull, as well as by the difference in the angle of the nose. Now, this doesn't really sound like a very solid identification to me. I mean, identification of skeletal remains happens all the time, obviously. But, could a non-medically trained person in 1852 definitively say whose skull one was merely by looking at it? I don't think so. Yet another skeleton was found in the vicinity of Perleberg in late 1910, and thought to have been that of Benjamin Bathurst. The skeleton is undoubtedly that of a man who met a violent death. He was buried on his face, and a few inches of sand shoveled over him. In the forehead is a large hole, doubtless the death wound. So what did happen to Benjamin Bathurst? 
I made a comment on Twitter the other day about mysteries that proved to be far less mysterious when you look into them, and I had this story in mind as I wrote that. I had always heard it as a Fortean disappearance. He walked around to the other side of the horses, and he vanished without a trace. It kind of reminds me of when I looked into Ambrose Small's disappearance. It's another one, you know, that's been acted as if it's like a Fortean weird, mysterious thing. But when you really look into it, there's some very good ideas as to what might have actually happened. The area where the horses were was apparently not lit very well at all. I suppose there's really four main theories as to what happened. That he was assassinated, either by Napoleon or Fouché. That he committed suicide in a state of insanity. That he simply wandered off. Or that, as Klitzing believed the case had been, he had, been, he had simply been robbed and killed. To be technical, he thought the Schmitz had were involved somehow. I'm tending to think that the skeleton unearthed under the former Merton's house may have been Bathurst. While it's usually assumed that it was the elder Mertens who killed him, it's also said that he, in turn, had gotten the house from a shoemaker, and recall Hacker's statement, and the rumor that her husband had far more money than a shoemaker should. His house was in the vicinity of the White Swan. The house where the skeleton was unearthed was only separated by a small field and a few buildings. Could the shoemaker who owned this house have been Hacker's husband? Also interesting is the fact that the body was found underneath the stables. A stable hand at the White Swan was said by Krause to have disappeared at about the same time. The identity of this skeleton could be easily determined for certain nowadays, if it could be found. It was buried somewhere in Perleburg, but as far as anyone's aware, there's no record as to exactly where. So at present, the disappearance of Benjamin Bathurst remains, and probably in all likelihood will remain, a mystery. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. And photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com slash forgdark. That's F-O-R-G-D-A-R-K. And links to all these um, are, I decided to put, I put in the shoot show description now because I hadn't had them there before. And it occurred to me, I'd always been saying to leave a comment on the podcast page and had never actually told anybody where the heck the podcast page was. So there's links to all that stuff there now. And so until next time, this is Andrew signing off. Oh, 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 oh,
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.